Hoover Dam. Right. <laughs> See, now, if I'd said that at my table, I would have gotten a completely different reaction. Hoover Dam is the only thing you have to say to Lauren's and my little family to hear the story. Not a story of adventure or grandeur or the marvel of engineering that is that dam, but of Stephen C. Wishart, the Reverend Stephen C. Wishart, husband to Lauren of 43 years, father to three grown men, and grandfather to four. Me. Me being a complete, insensitive idiot to my precious bride with that magnificent dam merely as backdrop. I won't bore you or humiliate myself with the narrative. You can ask Lauren, I'm sure she'd be glad to tell you. <laughs> but suffice it to say, it's one of everyone's favorite stories. Well, nearly everyone, not mine. And yes, I realize I just said damn four times in the first paragraph of my sermon, which in hindsight does seem rather excessive. I mention this, not the damn part, the story part. Because whenever Hoover Dam comes up at our family table, everyone knows verbatim what's about to go down. We have, in fact, almost no new stories, mostly just the same old rhubarbs that have kept us laughing, crying, and sometimes cringing for years. And Hoover Dam checks all three of those boxes. We don't repeatedly rehearse the same old stories because we're boring or unimaginative, at least I hope. It's actually incredibly important because our stories give our lives meaning and texture and they situate us and help remind us of who we are in our feats and in our foibles. This, in part, is why I believe C.S. Lewis said, the matter of our story should be a part of the habitual furniture of our minds. Maybe not Hoover Dam, but some stories must be retold over and over and over again. They are that important. We must rehearse them until they become like the familiar furniture in our home. Think about it. Even in the dark, we can find our way around. We can know precisely where we are. And it keeps us from stumbling around. I mean, think about think about the passage we read from Jeremiah today. Israel losing the story, forgetting the story, and falling repeatedly into sin and judgment. Great times of, of being in fellowship with God in seasons where they had lost the thread. In this week's gospel reading, Mark 1, 14 and 15, it says this. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, 
the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But what precisely is the gospel in this context? I mean, what might immediately come to mind for many of us, the reality of separation from God through our sin and the promise of salvation through Jesus' work on the cross, well, part of the story probably isn't the answer to that question because the crucifixion and resurrection were still future events. They hadn't happened. So I believe Jesus was pointing to an even bigger story, the fuller story of God in the world, of which the crucifixion and resurrection are crucial parts. It's a, it's a four-part, a four-chapter story that begins in Genesis 1 and 2 and concludes in Revelation 21 and 22, a story that tells not only of human fallenness and divine forgiveness, but of God's original design and intention and the ultimate restoration of all of his good creation. It's a story of such profound and comprehensive good news, which is what the word gospel literally means. It must become part of the habitual furniture of our minds. This is especially important, I think, as we prepare to occupy a new and permanent place in the city to which God has called us. Knowing this story is going to be critical. So, I want to tell it again. Some of you know it. Well, and some of you don't. This story has come to be called the four-chapter gospel the meta-narrative of Scripture, the big story that encompasses creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. I mentioned it briefly in a sermon just a couple of weeks ago. For many Christians in the West, though, the comprehensive narrative of Scripture has been neglected in part because the Bible's been kind of dissected into bits. We've got these moral bits, these systematic theological bits, devotional bits, historical bits, narrative bits, and homiletical bits. We've so dismembered and compartmentalized the Bible so that we can apply it to our lives, that we've sometimes lost sight of the great overarching story of the scriptures. And as a result, we attempt in most cases ineffectually to apply the bits and pieces of the Bible to our prevailing and persistent cultural story, which inevitably supplants the Bible as the story that's primarily shaping our lives. Only a unified biblical narrative has the power and authority to enable us to withstand the competing cultural narrative currently shaping the West. Scripture begins in Genesis 1 with the creation of all good things and ends in Revelation 22 with the restoration of all good things. And in between, it offers a framing of the meaning of all of history. The biblical meta-narrative makes a comprehensive claim on all humanity, calling us to find our place, not in our own individual identities and stories, but rather in God's big story. 
Creation tells us how things ought to be. The fall describes the world that is. Redemption tells us there's something that can be done as God did in the incarnation. And restoration tells us what will be, where we're actually headed. So an easy way to remember it is ought, is, can, and will. A unified story that begins in a garden and ends in a city. But this isn't just the overarching story of scriptures. It is also, as one of my friends calls it, our behavioral DNA. Think about it. Everyone solves problems using this matrix. We recognize the world that is, and the world that is isn't right because it's not as it ought to be. We understand if we have any agency at all that there are some things that can be done. And if we apply ourselves to these things, the outcome will be different. Ought, is, can, will. It's how every human being on the planet solves problems. It also is embedded deeply in our, just in our little kids. Think about what some of the first words out of their mouth are, that's not fair. Well, what does that even mean? if we don't have an idea of what fairness might be. Of course, fairness, you never negotiate with the terrorists. <laughs> they have a very different idea of fairness, but uh, I digress. Now, I'm not saying your kids are terrorists. And ours were. <laughs> but think, think about this. Much, if not all, the conflict in our nation and in the world begins with competing narratives or visions of what ought to be. Some people have no narrative. They just want things to be, quote-unquote, better, which usually means better for me. But a sense of ought is a deep, maybe the deepest desire embedded in every human heart. And this desire is actually good news evangelistically because it tells us something profound about God and every human's need for him. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity wrote, the Christian says creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction of those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find myself, if I find myself in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The first chapter of the story ought explains the way things were in the beginning. Ought marks the launch of God's love story to people. It gives us insight into how we were created and what we were created to be and to do. In Genesis 1, we learn how God fashioned the world to operate in perfect unity, peace, and true flourishing, what the Old Testament prophets called shalom. In the first few verses of the chapter, 
God worked, speaking the universe into existence out of nothing. We learn that God is a maker, a creator, a worker, and an artist who takes pride and finds pleasure in his good work. He created the heavens and the earth, and he was pleased. On the sixth day of creation, God created woman and man, not just as animals, but as the crowning glory of his work, and he fashioned them in his own image, we're told in Genesis 1, 27. He then gave them himself a performance review. He saw everything that he had made, and he declared it very good. In other words, he looked at his work and the world with love and delight. Understanding this context for our creation is transformational. God didn't create humanity to live purposeless lives. Out of his great love for people, God fashioned men and women as partners in his big story to carry out his work alongside him and in partnership with him. Where do we see this? Genesis 2.5 tells us, Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. Why? For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. Humanity, in other words, was instrumental as rain to God's intention for creation. So after God created people in Genesis 2.15, he gave them a specific task to care for and cultivate the world, charging them in chapter 1, verse 28, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, and to exercise dominion or power. Not domination. Dominion. They're very different things. I'm not going to get into that today. This is known as the cultural mandate. God's mandate for humanity to build and cultivate. Cultivate being the word where we derive culture. The cultural mandate gives us meaning, purpose, and a job for our time on earth. Literally, to make culture or cultures. The author of Genesis is saying that humanity's meaning and calling resides in the creation story. The cultural mandate was true from the beginning, and it has never been rescinded. Through the cultural mandate, we understand God's mission for his people. God created us as co-workers to be in relationship with him, to rule over his kingdom, to exercise dominion, and to make culture. So creation reveals God's magnificent love for us. In it, he shaped us in his image to reflect his glory and charged us with the greatest responsibility of all of his creatures to care for and cultivate as stewards his world. In his image, we have the ability and desire to have agency, to be in relationships, and to create. These aspects of God's image undergird all human dignity, desire, and ability. The second chapter of the story, the fall, describes the world that is. In Genesis 3, verses 1 through 19, it makes it clear that because our first parents rebelled against God, we are all fallen creatures with a nature bent toward selfishness, greed, and exploitation. This is not our design. It is however, now our default. 
Things are not the way they ought to be, and everyone knows it. Disobedience in Eden broke God's command and introduced sin into the world. Every aspect of human life and created order was then corrupted, we're told in Genesis 3 and in Romans chapter 8. Shalom, the unity and peace of God that God had woven into the world, began to unravel. Every part of the created order was damaged. Even the environment was altered. Everything was bent, including our relationship with God. Sin has corrupted every part of creation. But it's not all bad news. Chapter 3, redemption, gives us a glimpse of the way things can be. God didn't abandon the human race. He did not leave us to die in the misery resulting from sin. Instead, out of his immeasurable love, God delivered his people from sin and brought them into salvation by grace, through faith, administered by his son, Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23 tells us that in our sin, we deserve punishment, but instead, God graciously offers us his free gift of eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. And so, we have hope. This is the chapter we live in today. Christ's death has paid the price for all of the sin of his children, past, present, and future. Christ offers us a way to know God by clothing us in his own righteousness and initiating a restored, redeemed relationship with him. Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, and Titus 3, 7 Tell us that through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, God adopts us as his children. We receive the eternal inheritance of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 insists that in Christ we are a new creation. God's desire being our wholeness and flourishing. And living lives that show others the way things can be. The implications of redemption to our dailies daily life, though, aren't just theoretical. They're incredibly practical. Even in the midst of hardship and pain, we can experience joy, love, peace, reconciliation, and beauty illumined by God's word in the sacraments. We can see and affirm redemption in all the good parts of the world. Relationships reconciled. Illness healed. Neighborhoods renewed. As those who know the big story, we ought to be the first to affirm every good endeavor by anyone as an affirmation of God's redemptive desire for the world. Imagine the possibilities if we would default to applauding this impulse in the people around us, whether they're of like faith, differing faith, or no faith at all or even antagonistic toward us. Imagine the fruitful partnerships and the potential for meaningful engagement with the gospel that could bring. That's chapter three, redemption. Restoration, the fourth chapter, <coughs> anticipates the coming of the new age at Jesus' second advent and completes the work he started of making all things new, we're told in Revelation 21.5. In the restoration, Christ will, it says in Revelation 21.4, wipe every tear from every eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. We eagerly await the final chapter of God's story 
where there will be, again, wholeness and complete flourishing. And it's in this final chapter that after it has been, after it's been tried, all physical creation will be restored to a new heavens and a new earth. There are two Greek words for new. The first one is neos, which means totally new. The second is kainos, which means renewed. Almost every time the Bible uses the word new, referencing new birth, new selves, new creation, new heavens, new earth, it uses the Greek word kainos, restored. God won't throw away creation, but refine it and renew it because he does not make junk and he does not junk what he has made. In this final chapter, the, the resurrected followers of Christ will be given authority to rule over the new earth under the authority of Jesus the King in a new city, the new Jerusalem. Jesus himself will restore shalom to the entire creation and his people will live with him for eternity on a physical new earth, no longer marred by the curse of sin. Now, despite the greatness of this narrative, in the previous two centuries, the church in the West largely began to look at the Bible from a different and more limited perspective. In the United States, during the first half of the 19th century, for example, came a revival called the Second Great Awakening, led by preachers like Charles Finney. The revivalist preacher's view of the gospel focused almost entirely on personal sin and individual salvation. And while the movement had amazing and lasting positive effects, its unintended consequence was an abbreviated story of the gospel, a truncated gospel. It's been called the two-chapter gospel that begins in Genesis 3 and ends in Revelation 20. In the two-chapter gospel, chapter 1 represents the problem, separation from God because of our sin. And chapter 2 presents the solution. Jesus Christ has come to the world to bring salvation and reunite us with God through his work on the cross. And the smaller story is true as far as it goes. It's absolutely true. We really do live under the curse of the relentless and restless human declaration of independence from God and under the reality of coming judgment. But there are serious problems with this truncated version of the biblical story, the foremost of which is that it doesn't seem to offer much good news. A story that starts with sin, and actually what I didn't get to is it ends in judgment of the world, is a bad news to bad news story. Any good news is reduced to the message that for those who believe in Jesus, it's possible to escape the story altogether, being plucked up by some kind of divine skyhook into an eternal life outside the doomed story of the world. But of the world itself, especially its beauty and wonder, <clears throat> the truncated story of Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 has little to say. story that begins in sin and ends in judgment doesn't just fail to be good news. It isn't news at all. And it tells our neighbors nothing they can't figure out on their own. The world is screwed up and it doesn't look like it's going in a good direction. It's not going to end well. They, they can figure that out on their own. But the Bible story is a story of good news, both good 
and news, both unexpected and unexpectedly hopeful. While sin and salvation are undeniable realities, they're not the whole story. In this abridged version of the gospel, Christianity becomes all about us. It leaves out God's reason for our creation to enjoy loving and intimate fellowship with him forever as humans. The Bible teaches that salvation isn't an end in itself, but rather a means to enacting God's ultimate plan for humanity on this earth. With two chapters functionally edited out, the gospel becomes only about sinners being solicited for tickets to a disembodied eternity. Andy Crouch sums up the shift from the four-chapter gospel to the two-chapter gospel thus. For 2,000 years, the gospel was recited in four chapters titled Creation, Fall, Redemption, and Restoration. It reminds us that we are wonderfully made in the image of God. The gospel started in Genesis 1 and is affirmed in the Apostles, Nicene, and Athanasian creeds. Tragically, a little over 200 years ago, the story was edited to two chapters— Fall and redemption. The opening chapter of creation was largely forgotten. The new starting line was Genesis 3. It tells people that their primary identity is that of fallen sinners. But we're both made in God's image and sinners. Yet, while the two-chapter gospel accentuates our wounds, the four-chapter gospel elevates humanity's worth as image-bearers of God. While the two-chapter story focuses on our deficiency, the four-chapter story reminds us of our dignity. Reading the Bible as one grand narrative enables us to understand our identity as God's people because it situates us not in our own individual's individual identities and stories, but in God's story. From this perspective, we can see our call to participate with God in his redemptive mission. And his mission goes far beyond evangelizing far-off places or teaching a Sunday school class, though it includes those things. It defines the meaning of the entirety of our lives. It even radically connects our Sunday worship to our Monday work, which I want to talk about next week. By answering the call to fulfill our roles in God's redemptive drama, even the most mundane activities can be infused with meaning. And this meaning allows us to find peace and satisfaction that transcends our greatest expectation. The question, see, it, the question is not whether our lives will be shaped by some big story. The only question is which big story will shape our lives. For the one who's heard Jesus' call to follow him, the call comes with a summons to enter the story of which God himself is the climactic moment, the story revealed in the Bible. It's an invitation to find our place in that story. Only then can we truly submit to Scripture's authority. Only then can we understand our missional identity. Only then can we resist being absorbed into the idolatries of our day. The gospel when understood in its fullness, is not solely about individual happiness and fulfillment. It's not all about me. It's not just a wonderful plan for my life. 
but a wonderful plan for the world. It's about the coming of God's kingdom to renew all things. And this is the partnership he's called us into. And only with this bigger picture of you can we begin to understand how our story fits into his story. Thanks be to God.